technology in Alaska, we do have the internet, and it's not cold all year long. Um, people keep asking me, how do you deal with the weather? It's like, well, the same way everybody does, you put a jacket on. It's not that big of a deal. And we have furnaces, it's pretty amazing. Uh, lots of technology. Anyways, um, we are going to get started with a video uh, that talks about the Marketplace Missions Program that I briefly shared about this morning, uh, in this morning's session. And uh, I'd like to just invite you guys to watch the video, and it talks a little bit more about how you might be part of a gospel need in Alaska. Let me tell you a story, a story about my land and my people. The music, bring it back, the Aleut and the Athabasca, the Haida, the Denina, and the Clinton. These are my people, each uniquely and beautiful. For thousands of years, we have been proud of our heritage, a culture that has helped us thrive in one of the world's harshest environments. But there is more to the story. This is also a story of many of my people being in need of hope. It's a story of generations becoming trapped in alcoholism, depression, suicide, abuse, and bitterness. Our only hope is Jesus, and many of my people are desperately in need of an encounter with him. In Alaska, there are more than 100 villages without a consistent gospel presence. These are people in need of the hope of Christ. But you see, the places left in this world that remain unreached and underserved by the gospel are the hard places. But Christ's command remains, go. Go and make disciples. Go to the ends of the earth. Go to the forgotten, hidden by remoteness, to the lost and to the neglected. But who will go? Who will float the rivers of Alaska? Who will fly in bush plains to isolated villages on the tundra? Who will go to the lost and to the forgotten? You see, we need more. We need more called, we need more committed, and we need more sent. But how can just one more person make a difference in a land as vast as Alaska? It's as simple as bringing what you already have. In Acts 3, Peter meets the desperate need of the crippled beggar with the words, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, walk. Instantly the man is healed and his life is changed forever. One man's hopeless situation was forever changed because someone brought what they had. The thought of reaching a village by yourself can seem daunting, but a team trained working together can impact a community and can change lives. But how are teams possible? Well, every year in Alaska, hundreds of jobs become available in the villages. Jobs that can open the door for marketplace missionaries. Imagine if college graduates from around the nation made the decision to use their degree to be trained for cross-cultural marketplace missions in order to go into these villages to share the gospel, make disciples, and help write a new chapter in the story of the native people of Alaska. Peter said, what I have, I give. God uses those who bring what they have. What do you have? You have a degree, you have a career, you have a life. 
But most importantly, you have Jesus Christ. What if all of these things that you already have were given to make a difference? Will you give what you have to change the story of Alaska? about the possibility that God might be having you get this degree for a purpose bigger than just getting a paycheck or working a nine-to-five job. He might want you to use that degree in such a way that opens doors for you to be able to go into a place that would not have been available to, for you to go without that degree to be able to bring the gospel to the, that place and to those people. We're going to be talking about living missionally, and this is the way we do it here in, well, up in Alaska. And uh, so right now, currently, there are actually 25 Chi Alpha alumni from around the nation, uh, actually one from Southeast, from Alabama, uh, that are on the ground in Alaska, working and living in villages, many of them in villages that have no other consistent gospel witness, planting house churches. Now, what does a house church look like? Well, in the village, it looks like a Chi Alpha small group. You know what I'm talking about? It looks like a small group of people hanging out in a living room together, talking about Jesus, talking about scripture, and talking about how scripture can be applied to their life and how Jesus can change their life. And this is what they're doing. They're using their degrees uh, in order to gain access to become teachers in these places. And so if you have more questions about what that looks like, now some of you might be thinking, oh, good. He said teachers. I'm not a teacher. That's actually false. You're not off the hook. Sorry. Uh, we can actually help you through a 10-month training program, not only become trained to become a missionary in these places and work cross-culturally, but also be able to uh, take classes necessary in order for you to be certified to teach as long as you have a bachelor's degree. How many of you are pursuing a bachelor's degree currently? All right, perfect. You are all qualified to be a missionary in Alaska. Look at that. All right. Anyways, uh, that's as commercially as it gets for me today. I'm going to be telling a few more stories as we go throughout. Today is not just about missions in Alaska. It's about living missionally. Oh, before I move on, uh, we have something called our Inroads Trip. Uh, which is a seven-day cross-cultural missions intensive in Alaska. You travel to Anchorage. Uh, we put you on a plane. We uh, fly you out to a village that's literally closer to Russia than an American road. We put you on a boat. We boat you up and down the Kuskokwim River where you'll travel to smaller villages and visit our missionaries in those, in those smaller villages. And so uh, if you would like to, to do that this summer, the dates and details are available at our table. You can scan this QR code and fill out our uh, pipeline info uh, to get signed up for a monthly, or uh, sorry, a quarterly newsletter. And uh, it also, by filling that out, you also sign up for a free inroads trip. So we'll pay your entire way to go on that inroads trip. So uh, get signed up and uh, at the very least, just be praying for us and our missionaries on the field in Alaska. All right, we're going to jump into living missionally. I don't know about you, but I remember being in uh, SALT conferences. Oh, you can, yeah, there you go. Just leave that one uh, You, I, I grew up, well, I, I came through Chi Alpha as a Chi Alpha student, and I'm a missionary in Alaska now uh, doing Chi Alpha and the What I Have program, but I didn't always start that way. I remember being in SALT conferences, hearing missionaries come talk and speak, and being like, wow, that's really cool that you are doing that. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, wow, that's really inspiring that you do that. I could never do that. But I'm glad somebody is because that's inspiring and it inspires me, right? Well, I believe this, that every single one of us who sign up to be a Christ follower have also signed up to be a part of fulfilling the Great Commission that Jesus has asked us to do. That is to go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I would argue this, that living missionally for Christ is actually more fun than you, that you will, you will have more fun living missionally for Christ than any other, any other goal that you would ever pursue in your entire life. Living missionally for Jesus every single day results in you having God stories. It results in you uh, understanding Jesus in a way that you would have never understood him before. And it starts right now, this semester, on your college campus. Right now, I'm a missionary in Alaska, but my first job in Chi Alpha was not missionary in Alaska. My first job in Chi Alpha was to invite people to my small group. How many of you are part of the small group? All right. I'm going to challenge you to start living missionally by simply inviting people to your small group. You see, my journey as a missionary started by saying, well, okay, uh, I have a small group. I like my small group. I have people on my dorm floor. They would probably like small group too. I should invite them. It was literally that simple. And so I started knocking on every single door on my dorm floor in Reed Hall at North Dakota State University. And I just started inviting them to come to my small group. And guess what? One in about 10 came to my small group. 10%, everybody's like, wow, that's pretty good, right? 10% came. Now, I, I got told nine times out of 10. Some of you are like, I, I, I could never make it that far, right? But one in 10 came. And one in about those 10s invited a friend. And over the course of that first year of just my only job, just being like, I can invite people to my small group. We had 12 people make decisions for Christ. Amen. Four of those people, listen to this, four of those people are in full-time ministry or missions today all around the globe. All because you just knocked on a door. My friends, the world could change because you knock on a door, swallow your pride just a little bit, and start living missionally. My next job in Chi Alpha was to lead my own small group. My next job after that was to intern with Chi Alpha. My next job after that was to be on staff. After that, the Lord started to speak to me about this need in Alaska. And I remember I traveled to Alaska as a junior in college. And I just thought I was going there for the summer. Like I was like, yeah, Alaska sounds cool. I might catch a fish. Right? That would be a really great thing to post on my, you know, social media page. Be like, yeah, right? Like, uh, I'll, I'll grow a beard, all right? I'll become all things to all men. I'll wear flannel. It'll be wonderful. And then I'll go home. I'll have this experience, right? Well, I get up there and I step foot on a campus called University of Alaska Anchorage where there was not a single Chi Alpha or college ministry on that campus. 14,000 students, not a single college ministry. I was at North Dakota State where I could choose from one of 12. And these 14,000 students had no opportunities to be a part of a Christian community. And I remember being on that campus, looking around and saying, this is stupid. Somebody should do something about this. 
And then that summer, I got to fly out to a village. So we got on a plane, and we flew to a medium-sized village where I got on a much smaller plane, where I flew to a much smaller village, where then this big burly man wearing Carhartts was there to pick me up. He's like, get on. I was like, okay. And he had a trailer getting pulled behind a four-wheeler. I had no, I'd never seen this man before in my life. No one had showed me a picture of him. He could have been a serial killer for all I knew, right? Like this is what he does. Like he just makes cycles at the airport. You know what I'm saying? So we land on this gravel runway. I'm like, you're my only option. So I get out, I get onto his trailer. He trailers me to the banks of the Yukon River. I boat 17 miles up the Yukon River. We land on an island in the middle of the Yukon River Delta where these kids from five different villages start to show up to camp by boat. I mean, this is like the most fun I've ever had in my entire life, right? Like, this is so cool. We're living in tents for the week, and these kids start to come to this camp. And these kids that show up to this camp, I can tell, have experienced things that I've never had to deal with or experience in my entire life. They come to camp, and you can just see it on their faces that they carry a heaviness and a brokenness with them. They didn't really want to talk. They didn't really want to interact, and slowly throughout the week, we kept playing games with them, we kept laughing with them, and they slowly started to open up, and as they started to open up, we started to hear their stories. And as we started to hear their stories, we started to hear stories of how they were, mom and dad were, were maybe struggling with alcoholism, and, and uh, there was abuse in their homes. In fact, as they started to open up, we started to realize that there was not a single young lady at that camp that hadn't been sexually abused in some way. And as we talked to one of the missionaries that was serving out there, he said, yeah, Steve, to my knowledge, there's not a single young lady in my church above the age of four that hasn't been raped or sexually molested. There was literally every single young man I talked to had had murder or suicide affect his immediate family. And I watched as the week went on and they heard a message of hope through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I watched their hearts open to the fact that maybe the gospel could give them hope. I watched many of these kids make decisions for Christ for the very first time. I watched as this heaviness and this oppression and this darkness started to break off of them. I watched as Jesus started to heal hurts and emotional pain. And the gospel set these kids free. Their literal countenance changed. Their faces became bright. There were smiles on their face. And I remember at the end of the week... We were saying goodbye, we got them back on boats, and we waved goodbye, and many of these students were going back to villages that didn't have pastors or churches. And I remember standing on the banks of the Yukon River and thinking, this is stupid. Somebody should do something about this. And it was in that moment that the Lord whispered in my ear, and he just said simply, Steve, would you be willing to do something? You see, I think a lot of times when it comes to the call of missions or living missionally, we wait for this road to Damascus moment. What do I mean by that? The road to Damascus was when Paul saw this vision from heaven, like Jesus showed up, and he was like, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And there was this flash around him, and there was like this lightning, and he was blind for days afterwards. And some of us are waiting for our missions call to come in that way. Like, God, I'll be a person of influence on campus if you blind me in the student union. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> no, no, no. My friends, God is just simply looking for people 
who see a need and say, this is stupid. Somebody should do something about it. And he whispers in their ear and said, are you willing to do something about this? And the same way that my first yes was not saying yes to moving 3,000 miles to go to Alaska. My first yes was just knocking on a dorm room door. My friends, what is your first yes when living missionally that God is asking you to say yes to? You see, so often we worry about the five-year plan, right? How many people in here are stressed about where you're going to be in five years? Just raise your hand. Can we just be honest? All right. Yeah, we're all probably have some anxiety, right? Listen, God's not worried about your five-year plan nearly as much as he's worried about your five-minute plan. Are you going to be obedient and living missionally in the next five minutes? Because five minutes of obedience turn into five days of obedience. And five days turns into five months, and five months eventually turns into five years. And you will find yourself in a place living and walking with Jesus that it goes far beyond anything you could have ever asked or imagined. You will have adventures with Jesus like anything that goes beyond anything you could have ever asked or imagined because you just said simply yes to the next five minutes of obedience with the Lord. So why should we do this? Well, the reason we live missionally is because Jesus has commanded us to do it. Number two, souls are worth it. Amen? Souls are worth it. There's nothing more valuable than a soul because there is eternal worth in a soul. And number three is that when we live missionally, we actually get to understand and know Jesus more. You might be here today. In fact, I feel like this is a word for somebody or many people in this room. You're here and you're frustrated a little bit with your walk with Jesus. You're frustrated with your walk with Jesus because what, what was once so exciting and new has now become mundane and has become a little bit more like normal to you. And maybe what was once exciting in, in, in reading scripture, like I used to get so much out of scripture, now all of a sudden it's just kind of become a little bit dry. Anybody ever walked through dry seasons before? You see, I think sometimes we get into those places and we put ourselves there because we're only fighting the internal battles in our lives. Anybody been on a rowboat in here? Like three of you, great. This is gonna, but we understand the concept that a rowboat has two oars, right? And I believe this, that our spiritual journeys with Jesus have two oars. One oar represents the internal battles that Jesus wants to win in us, and one or represents the external battles that Jesus wants to fight and win through us. But you see, if all we ever are concerned with is the internal battles, how does Jesus make me feel? What is Jesus going to do for me? What am I going to get out of Chi Alpha? What am I going to get out of this conference? What happens if we're only battling, but we're only or in one or? We eventually start to spin in circles. And our spiritual journeys become dry and mundane, and we kind of feel like, well, we're just kind of doing the same thing over and over again. Maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe this Jesus thing really wasn't for me. But you see, when we start to say, man, maybe Jesus has healed me and set me free of some things so that I, what has happened in me can start to happen through me, and I start to have external battles, I start to or with the other or. And as I do that, I start to move in a direction that's going to eventually lead me into the God-given destiny that Jesus has set out before me. But we've got to be paddling both oars. 
I think sometimes we just play spiritual defense. God did not give you a bomb shelter of righteousness or a bunker of truth, right? And so often we treat, I mean, right? Some of you have grandmas in here. They're like, I just really hope that you don't, that you can get involved in that Kayelpa so that you can survive in college. You know what I'm saying? I don't know why your grandma sounds like that, but she does too, right? Maybe your parents were like, oh, I just hope that that secular campus doesn't ruin you, you know? But my friends, Chi Alpha is not designed to be a bunker of truth, right? We have a breastplate of righteousness. We have a spirit of truth, right? We have this sword of truth. We are meant to go into battle for Jesus' kingdom. Okay, so if I stopped there, this would just be a hoorah-rah speech, and I want to give you some practical ways to be able to live missionally on your campus. Because... This is kind of what our campuses are like. We're on this side of the chasm. You can go to that next photo, right? So here's our Chi Alpha, our little church world over here, and the rest of the world is on the other side of this chasm. And in the middle is this big chasm of misunderstanding and unknownness, and if the world really has no reason to go over to your side unless they understand the value of what it is that you have. And Living missionally means that I'm willing to go from this side in my own little church world, and I'm willing to go and live amongst people who don't think the way I think, don't have the worldview that I do, and I'm going to go and be a person of influence amongst them. And one of the experts in this, in the, in the scripture, is a guy named Paul. Paul did this all the time. We're going to read in Acts chapter 17. We're going to learn a couple things, a couple pointers from Paul as to how to live missionally in our everyday lives. So Paul is actually on his way to go do something else. He's got a layover in this city called Athens, and he's waiting for some people to meet him there. And this is where we pick up the story about Paul. It says this, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting at the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We would like to know what they mean. All of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. What does this sound like? This sounds like a college campus, right? All we do is spend our entire day thinking and talking about the latest ideas, right? And people argue with us sometimes, and sometimes they get in our face about things. Sometimes they disagree with us, right? This sounds a lot like the college campus. Paul stood up at the meeting at the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worshiped. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. And he uses this little snippet of culture 
as a springboard in order to be able to contextualize the gospel in a way that makes sense to the Athenians. He goes on to preach an incredible message, and at the end it says this, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of them became followers of Paul and believed. So Paul, on a layover in Athens, figures out a way to preach the gospel. What can we learn from Paul about living missionally? Well, the first thing, if you're going to live missionally on your campus, the first thing that you need to do is you need to be concerned. You need to be concerned. Notice it says that Paul was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Man, he was on his way to go do something else. He could have been thinking about his next thing. He could have been, his mind could have been on something else. He could have been thinking about a book that he was reading. He could have been thinking about a million other other things. But when he walks into this city, his heart was so tender to the things of the Lord that it bothered him that this city did not know Jesus. My friends, does it bother you that your campus doesn't know Jesus? No, no, does it actually bother you? Like, not just be like, oh, yeah, that's a bummer. But it doesn't instead drive you to a place of desperation in prayer, of crying out to God, saying, God, please, please do something for my classmates. Do something for my roommates. Do something for those living on my dorm floor. Does it bother us? My friends, it's really simple. God will give you a heart for his people if you ask for it. But don't ask for it unless you're serious about it, because when he gives you his heart, it's going to bug you a little bit. There's going to, it's going to cause distress inside of you. And distress is uncomfortable, but my friends, it is the birthplace of living missionally wherever we go. Does it bother us that not just that the people on our campus don't know Jesus, but does it bother us that 42% of the world has never heard the name of Jesus? Does it bother us that Northern Asia is in desperate need of more Christian workers? Does it bother us that India is in desperate need of more Christian workers? Does it bother us that there are people in Europe that will never have the opportunity to have a Christian friend? Do these things bother us? Because I know this, that they bother the heart of God. And God takes responsibility to do something about it. You see, I think sometimes there's a difference between commitment and conviction. Some of you have made a commitment to your Chi Alpha group, but you haven't allowed the Holy Spirit to convict your heart for what the Lord wants to do through you. You see, a commitment is something that we will make sacrifices for. A conviction becomes a part of every fiber of our being. It flows out of us naturally. We don't need our campus director to say, hey, you should invite someone. We're compelled by a conviction deep within us. A commitment will only work as long as a system is there to hold us accountable to a commitment. A conviction will work anywhere and everywhere. A commitment eventually will leave us fried and burnt out. A conviction feeds us energy as we pursue it. A conviction is what drove every single one of the disciples and apostles. 
to eventually give up their life for what they believed in. I was talking to one of our students and he was complaining to me. He was like, ah, you know, Steve, I just, Kyalpha, Kyalpha just asks a lot of me. Anybody been there before? <laughs> wow, vulnerable. I love it. All right. We've all been there before, right? That campus, that, my campus pastor just doesn't understand my credit load this semester, right? They just keep asking me to do stuff, right? Now, I'm not, this is not a pitch to just do more, right? But I sat with that student, and I'm like, okay, so, so what do you mean? Explain this to me. He's like, well, listen, like, leading a small group is like a, like a three or four night a week commitment. I have small group, I have Chi Alpha, I have leadership meetings, and then every, and when we have a Chi Alpha event, that's a fourth night. I just don't know if I can keep doing this. I said, like, yeah, I don't know if you can either. Because you just described small group leading as a commitment. And if I let you continue to operate as a commitment, you're going to burn yourself out. You'll never want to do ministry again. I said, my friend, small group leading and making disciples is a seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-week conviction that needs to burn inside your heart. And until the Holy Spirit has allowed you to do that, until you realize that there's nothing more important on this earth than making disciples and being obedient in that way, This is always going to feel like an energy drain to us. My friends, I can't do this for you. Your campus pastor can't do this for you. They can't inspire you enough. The Holy Spirit is responsible for bringing conviction into your hearts. And if you ask him for concern for the lost, he'll give it to you. And you might just weep over the fact that somebody in your biology class doesn't know Jesus. You might cry for the first time about the fact that you are sitting next to somebody in the student union who is just idly eating their lunch, living in hopelessness and despair, one decision away from a solution to every single problem they've ever faced, and his name is Jesus. And all it takes is enough courage to just go say hello. That leads me to my second thing, and that is that we need to get uncomfortable. I don't have a slide for this one. We need to get uncomfortable. Again, Paul could have just played a chill on his layover and said, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to, just going to relax. Going to have some me time. Just a few cities ago, I got arrested. All right. That was a traumatic experience. Literally, he just had gotten arrested. In fact, the Holy Spirit had just broken him out of jail. He gets broken out of jail, and he like goes back to jail to lead the jailer to Jesus. And then he's like, okay, gotta go, bye, all right? Like, this is what Paul's life was like. He's in the city of Athens, probably like, oh, just need a breather, right? Could really use a, I could just really, I could just, you know what I could go for right now? A quick Stranger Things binge, right? Something like that, it's probably what he's thinking. And it's like, you know what? Actually, I'm distressed by the fact that there's idols here, and I'm willing to get uncomfortable yet again for Jesus. My friends, what are you unwilling to give up? Maybe, maybe for you, it's, it's a fear of offending people. Maybe you just, man, I have a rough credit load. Maybe for you, it's, I just, I'm not gifted the same way somebody else is gifted. Maybe for you, it's social anxiety. Maybe for you, it's a personality barrier that you're like, well, I'm just not really an outgoing person. My friends, your extrovertedness or introvertedness has nothing to do with whether or not you're called to live missionally. 
In fact, you extroverts, you sometimes freak a lot of people out, okay? <laughs> and sometimes what somebody, the exact thing that that person eating lunch in the student union needs is a quiet introvert to come up to them and just say, hey, right? <laughs> Not, hey, you want to come to Kai right? right? That was mostly my approach in college. Freaked a lot of people out. That's how I know that, all right? Are you willing to get uncomfortable for Jesus? I was a sophomore in college when this became a conviction in my heart. I was like, I'm willing to do anything, Jesus. Sign me up, right? And so I was like, I started to practice hearing God's voice on campus. And I'm like, Lord, if there's somebody that you want me to talk to, I'll do it. I'm going to do it. And so I'm riding my bike on campus one day. And I ride my bike past this girl. And it was like just the Holy Spirit just like tugged at my heart, you know? It wasn't like an audible voice from heaven. It was just like, I need to go pray for her. I was like, oh, no. Oh God, I would do this, right? Okay, I'm gonna do this. So I like bike by her. I'm like, okay, turn the bike around, Steve. Be a man, right? So I stop the bike, I turn around, and I bike, I'm I'm biking up to her bike, and I'm like, okay, all right, here she comes. You gotta stop, you gotta stop, you gotta stop, you gotta stop. And I just kept up. <laughs> so literally, no joke, I turned the bike around again, and I did the same thing again. <laughs> And now I stop the bike and I give myself a pep talk. I'm like, bro, pull yourself together. You are a man of God, right? I like all of these, all of these cliches, right? You are more than a conqueror, right? <laughs> so I bike all the way back, but now it's like super weird, right? This is the like, had she no hopefully, I'm like, hopefully she didn't notice that the same guy has just biked by her four times, right? At this point, I'm like a creep. But now, literally, she had, like, walked into, like, an alleyway between two buildings. So this made it even worse, right? I bike up to her, I stopped my bike, I said, hey. Uh, so, you know, this might sound strange to you, but as I was biking by, I just felt like the Lord said that I was supposed to pray for you. Is there, is there anything I can pray for you for? And her eyes got really big. She goes, no, nah, I'm good, man. <laughs> and she walked away. That's the end of the story. <laughs> the reason I tell you that story is because how many preacher and missionary stories end with, and then she said, yes, actually, blah, 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 blah. And then I led her to Jesus, and she got saved, and everybody lived happily ever after, right? That's how we want every story to end. But not every story ends that way. Sometimes... God calls you to do things that are going to make you feel foolish in the moment and going to leave you feeling foolish when you get done. And guess what? In that moment, you know what the Lord taught me? That was painful. But I looked around and I'm like, I'm still alive. <laughs> that didn't kill me. And it made me that much more courageous and that much more bold the next time around. Because I said, listen. That actually wasn't nearly as bad as what I made it out to be in my mind. For some of you, your biggest hurdle to living missionally is the voice in your head that's literally catastrophizing every single missions opportunity that you have. Well, I mean, what if what if they say no and they never come to Chi Alpha and then they never they never want to ever be a Christian ever again and then you like you know blah 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 blah, blah right? What if they like sick a dog on you and, and hunt you down at night and kill you and all of your family, right? Like no, that's not gonna happen. Like, that's not going to happen. And so often we catastrophize everything in our brains 
And next time you do that, instead of asking yourself, well, what happens if this doesn't work? Ask yourself, what if this does work? What if when I knock on this door, that is the first step to that person knowing Jesus for all of eternity? Then your brain starts to get filled full of hope. And it starts to be filled full of an understanding that, wow, this something really could happen. i got to hurry up. I'm telling too many stories. All right. Number three is that we need to go gain understanding. Notice that Paul reasoned with them in the synagogues. He didn't just sit there and be like, hey, you should go to church. See ya. Right? But often that's our strategy, right? We stand, you can put that next picture up. We stand on one side. Oh, keep going. There we go. We just, we have the megaphone approach. We hang up a Chi Alpha poster. Or we, we wear our Chi Alpha t-shirt. We're like, walking billboard today, doing the work of Jesus, right? No. It requires you to actually go to the next photo. You got to actually get over there and live amongst them in order for them to see past the misconceptions that they have, right? This is why Paul went and reasoned with them day by day. He went to the synagogues, but he also went to the marketplaces. He saw the religious leaders, and he also saw the people that were just normal, everyday human beings. And in doing that, he started to understand their worldview. My friends, your campus is full of people who don't have the worldview that you do. In fact, if we want to get technical, no one has your worldview. Not a single person. We all have slightly different worldviews than the person sitting next to us. And the only way to understand how to communicate Jesus effectively to that person is if you spend time with them and get to know them to gain understanding. The fourth thing we can then do is to find bridge points. Find bridge points for the gospel. Notice what Paul does. He's walking around Athens and he comes across this temple to an unknown God. And he reads this inscription to an unknown God. And he goes, <laughs> I could use this. <laughs> and he uses that as the first board in the bridge to helping them understand who Jesus actually is. He says, yeah, that temple to the unknown God, let me tell you about that God that you don't know. Not only is he the God that you don't know yet, but he's actually the only God. He's the one true God, and he sent his son Jesus to die for you. And let me tell you about that Jesus and how you can have a personal relationship with him, and people start getting saved. Today, I really do believe this, that the context for the gospel is relationship. You can go to that next picture. You see, relationship allows us to get people to see Jesus clear enough to where it starts to make sense that Jesus would be somebody that they should desire to have. But this isn't going to happen with a one-and-done ministry event. This happens by us saying, I'm willing to go and, and I'm willing to do the hard work of friendship. So my friends, my question for you here is, what's your first board? Maybe it's a simple cup of coffee. Maybe it's a simple invitation to hang out with your friend circle that really hasn't expanded their friend circle in a long, long time. Maybe it's inviting somebody to fill that open seat that you have on a road trip that you're about to take. 
Maybe it's just a simple invitation to a small group or to a small group hangout. Maybe it's an invitation to, you know, go watch the Georgia Bulldogs lose the national championship. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> okay. I don't know why I, 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 I don't know why I did that. That was, that was bad. I shouldn't have done that. My bad. Georgia, we love you. We love you, right? <laughs> just felt like we needed a breather. I don't know why. You guys, it's actually really, really simple. I have a picture of uh, my friend Caleb. Uh, next picture. I'm skipping that one. Next picture. There you go. This is Caleb and Callie. They live in a, in a village called Akachuk. Caleb is from Texas. And uh, for all of you who are like, oh, I could never live in Alaska. It's just too cold. And I'm from the south, right? These guys are from Texas. And they live in a village out on the Cuscoquan River Delta. Caleb had never shot a gun before coming to Alaska, all right? And he gets invited. He's living in a village for a month. He gets invited on a moose hunt, right? He's like, yes, I will, I will go, right? But before he got invited on a moose hunt, he actually got invited by some elders in the community to go berry picking, right? And so they're like, you want to, and, and they said, you want to come to berry picking with us? And he's like, sure, I'll go berry picking. So Caleb and Callie go berry picking. And he's not really into the berry picking. That's not really his vibe. So he, it was sunny that day, and he curls up on the tundra. It's like this thick moss, about this thick. And he, like, curls up, and the sun's shining, and he falls asleep. And they gave him a Yupik name called Nuakatak, which uh, simply means tundra sleeper, all right? <laughs> so they come up to Nuakatak, and they're like, hey, do you want to... Hey, Nuwakotak, do you want to come? Like, they literally call him this. And the entire village calls him this now. They call him Tundra Sleeper, right? So do you want to come moose hunting with this? He says, sure. And he has this incredible moose hunt. And on that moose hunt, his first spiritual conversation with one of his native friends happens. And that friendship has given way to an opportunity for him to have a discipling relationship with this young man. All because... He just said, yeah, I'm going to go and I'm going to gain understanding of your way of life. And I'm going to start building a bridge for you to see Jesus more clearly by doing things with you. Some of you are like, if, if missions in Alaska involves moose hunting, I am in. Sign me up. <laughs> it literally does. Yes, it's actually a requirement. We teach you how to shoot guns, drive snowmobiles, and we teach you how to fish and drive boats, all that stuff. Because if you don't, uh, there's just a lot of ways to die in Alaska. So we try to keep you alive. We haven't lost anybody yet. We haven't lost anybody yet. I probably shouldn't say that. Like, I mean, I'm here to like try to get people to come to Alaska, right? I'm like, yeah, a lot of ways to die. All right. I'm just being real. I'm just being real. Last one, and then I'll let you guys go. Is that we eventually need to guide people to the point of decision. Paul did not water down his message to be relevant. He did not sacrifice holiness for relevancy. He did not accept the Athenians' way of life in order not to be offensive. You see, I think sometimes we miss this part because of the culture that we live in and we find we can, we can build false security in the bridge that we are building people. My friends, it is not your job to build the rest of that bridge. It is their job to say, I'm willing to make a decision to actually go all in for Jesus. 
but it is your job to tell them what that actually looks like. And that Jesus requires us to go all in. We can't skirt around the gospel. We can't have community give people false security. We have to push people to a real, authentic, genuine understanding of the gospel that literally encompasses and consumes every single part of their life. Because then and only then will they make it for the long haul for Jesus. I want to close with a story of my friends Colin and Megan. Move to the next one. Here they are. These are two of our missionaries in the, the village of Tuliksak, Alaska. I'm not making these names up. This is legitimate. All right. This is Megan and Colin. Uh, and they were doing our 10-month training program to get ready to move to a village. And uh, in month, like, six or so, they came to us, and they're like, hey, we just wanted to share some really exciting news with you. Like, oh, what's that? Like, we're pregnant. We're having a baby. It's like, wow, that's cool. And uh, our training director goes, well, this has implications. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a baby, right? So we start working out the due date in our heads. And they're supposed to move to a village 400 miles away from the nearest hospital that can deliver a child. Uh, and they're supposed to move there a month before she's due. And we looked at them and we're like, okay, so what's this mean? Are you guys still wanting to go to the village? And they looked at us and they like, were like, had disgust on us. <laughs> we're like, yeah, why wouldn't we? Well, I mean, it's a really, like, this is a big, this is a big hurdle, like raising a child in a village, blah, 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 blah. You know, we like tried to spell it out for them. And they go, yeah, we've weighed the cost and we're going to go. Jesus, and this is what they said, Jesus said go, so we really don't have a choice, do we? And they didn't say that in like, Jesus put them in like an arm bar, right? They said it in such a way that like, he's my Lord. Of course I'm going to go. Fast forward, they move out to Tuliksak, and uh, she, Megan's out there only for a couple weeks. And she has to fly into uh, a city to have the baby. They bring uh, uh, women that are about to have babies in a month early, just in case there's complications or whatever. And so they bring her in, and when they go in, everybody in the village literally is like, oh, okay, yeah, like, they'll never be back. Because, why? Because this happens all the time. People leave the village all the time. In fact, the average stay of a teacher in a village is less than one year. There's like 400 teacher positions open in Alaska currently. Because people don't want to live in these places because of the complications. And so Megan goes, she has the baby. Colin flies in to meet his new daughter, meets his new daughter. Not a single person in the village is expecting them to come back. And they come back. Colin comes back. And then a couple weeks later, Megan comes back with the baby. And the entire village is completely shocked. They can't, this doesn't compute. Why would you come back? Why would you bring a newborn baby into a place like Tuluksai? And you guys, what I want you to hear is this, is that this has opened the door for them to share the gospel in ways that would have never been available to them 
Because what they communicated to an entire village of people is that you are worth the sacrifices that are required in my family. I love you so much that I'm delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but my very life as well, because you've become so dear to me. Sometimes Megan's heat in her house stops working and she wakes up in a 45 degree house in the middle of the night and has to go reboot her furnace with a newborn baby. And every single time I talk to her, she's got a positive attitude. Why? Also that 200 people in an obscure village that no one has ever heard about would have the opportunity to hear the name of Jesus and to understand the gospel. I love Megan and Colin's story because it makes our excuses of our big credit load sound pretty lame, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. My friends, I want to challenge you as we close to ask the Holy Spirit to have you be concerned for those around you and concerned so much that you're willing to get uncomfortable and as you get uncomfortable, that you're willing to go gain understanding, start building bridges, and leading people to the point of decision. And if I could leave you with one thing, it would be this. Today, sometime today, before you go to bed tonight, get alone with Jesus. And just ask him this simple question. Jesus, break my heart for what breaks yours. Just break my heart for what breaks yours. It's the starting place of every missions movement. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in this room are the ingredients to a revival for every campus in southeastern United States. And the ingredients to revival all over the world. And Lord, I pray that, that those ingredients would become activated through five-minute five minute yeses and living missionally in every part of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. I'll be around. So please come talk to me and ask.